Well, it's a pleasure to be with you once again. It's always a, just, this is my favorite church, other than my own church, but uh, my favorite church to come to and be with, and I just thank you so much for the opportunity, the privilege I have of uh, being a part of your fellowship from time to time, and especially this week, this weekend when we have a special celebration of the ordination of Pastor James. I was thinking this week as I was uh, thinking about the message and the event and everything about a man probably most of you haven't heard anything about. His name was John Mason Peck. And John Mason Peck was eventually became a, uh, a missionary, a home missionary in the area of uh, Illinois, Kentucky, down through there, back in the early part of the 19th century when that was kind of frontier. And he would go and plant churches and eventually... Also helped start the American Baptist Home Mission Society. This is about 1832 or something like that. But the interesting thing about uh, John Mason Peck was that when he first felt as though God had called him to preach, he was in contact with this church, and this church invited him to come. They weren't sure whether he was really called of God and whether they should ordain him or not. So they said, well, if you'll preach six months, with us, and then we'll decide whether we should ordain you or not. So he preached six months, and the people still weren't very sure whether they should do it or not, so they preached six more months, and finally concluded, after a year of preaching, that sure enough, he is qualified to be ordained and called in to be your pastor. But Pastor James, just seems like it's been a long time for you. How many years has it been now? Let's see if that, he was a year trying to get to that place, and you're how long? And, and now they're just deciding what took so long. I just can't understand. Anyway, I'm just teasing James. But uh, it's a wonderful privilege to be here and be a part of your ordination process this week. My message, uh, especially for James, but for the rest of us as well, uh, Pastor or Dr. MacArthur, last week we had our beginning of the year faculty retreat, and uh, John MacArthur came and he mainly came, I think, to play golf, and he played golf with us, but uh, he stayed around a little bit for the evening meal, and then he talked a little bit about some of the things that he's been doing and some of the things that happened during the, the summertime. And uh, one of the things that he had done was to complete the uh, work his work on Second Corinthians, and he was just saying, he said, it's been great for me to study through this in the latter part of my ministry, and he said, I think everybody who is going to be a leader in the work of God ought to master Second Corinthians because it's just so full of the, the things that a shepherd like Paul have to go through, the hard times, the troubles, the trials. He talks about, you know, being beaten and with many stripes and shipwrecked. And he tells all of his story, kind of autobiography, uh, through a good part of Second Corinthians. The false teachers that were opposing him and all those kind of things. And I think uh, when I left seminary, you know, I, I went to a good Bible-believing seminary. And I came out with both guns blazing, you know, ready to take on the devil and the world and the flesh and everything else. Uh, one of the things that kind of surprised me was that that right away, things got hard. I don't think they maybe told me enough about the fact that there was going to be tough times, there was going to be hardships. 
there's going to be difficulties and some real temptations and some real intense situations that would come into our lives. And I thought this morning that maybe we could just kind of focus on that. I listened to Pastor James yesterday. It was just spectacular what he, how he handles the Word of God and everything. But now you know all the more the devil is your enemy. I mean, he's just out to do whatever he can to destroy you. And because of that, he's going to bring all kinds of things into your life at different times. Most of them will not be that significant. You're going to have piles of joy that will counteract all those things. But for sure, there's going to be some real troubles and trials and difficulties that are going to come into your life. And so this morning, I'd like to discuss some principles from the book of James and kind of intersperse them with testimony about my own life. And before I get to the book of James, you might just start out by turning to the book of Romans, and I'll read a couple other passages in just a minute, and then we'll get to the book of James and stay there. Romans chapter 5. I had the privilege of growing up in a wonderful Christian home. My mother was saved when she was in her teenage years, and she became a, a tremendous Christian, a wonderful lady of God. She was a kindergarten teacher in a Christian school, taught that for 25 years, and she was a deaconess, and she, she taught a lot of ladies' groups, and she taught a lot of children, and worked in young people's groups, and different things like that. Uh, she was uh, a real blessing to our family, and a wonderful, wonderful Christian. My father was reared on a farm back east of Westville, Illinois, back in an area called Grape Creek which is right across the, the holler, as he would say, from Hobbuck. I mean, this is back in the woods. When I was little, they didn't even have electricity in some of those places back in there. So way back, and that's where my dad, my dad grew up back in that area. Most of his adult life, he was a, a carpenter. But he kind of thought of himself as a woods, woodsman. And so our, my life growing up was kind of fun. In that we kind of had a cycle of things that we did on a regular basis. <clears throat> in the summer, we would go fishing. In fact, several years, we actually went up into Canada from Illinois, up in the Kenora, Canada area, and uh, made that our vacation. So we really enjoyed the fishing part. And then uh, sometime in there, we, I remember we went and picked blackberries, and you always had to worry about the chiggers getting all over you, you know, when you did blackberries, so you my mother would tie kind of rubber bands around these long shirts that would put on us and uh, make sure the chiggers couldn't get up under your arms. Anyway, we'd go pick the, we'd go pick the blackberries. And then when, when fall came, there was usually uh, cattails. You know what those are? We'd go find some swampy area and cut some of those things for decoration. They were bittersweet. We'd uh, have the bittersweet. I also decorate the house, kind of an orange berry-like thing. It would just decorate the house during that time. And we'd find that my dad knew where there were some walnut trees. We'd go pick the walnuts and also some hickory nut trees. We'd go pick the, the hickory nuts. And about the time in the fall there in Illinois, when it start to get kind of crispy in the morning in October or so, then we'd start our hunting cycle, and we'd go squirrel hunting to start out with. And out in the beautiful morning, you know, when the colors of the trees were so bright and hunt the, hunt the squirrel. And then it was pheasant and quail. And then through the wintertime, it was rabbit. And then in the spring, 
uh, one of the first things we did was to go mushroom hunting. And we'd go pick out the morale mushrooms, which are the greatest things in the world to eat. And I don't know about anything else. I, uh, people say, how do you keep from being poisoned? Well, I just recognized what a morale mushroom was, and I could pick that and nothing else. Uh, but uh, we'd pick mushrooms in some place in there. We'd also dig up some sassafras roots, which would make for sassafras tea, or you could also even cut off a little piece of it and, and eat it. And then it would be summer again, and we'd start to cycle all over. But uh, it was kind of fun. I mean, you know, growing up in my dad's house, it was a delight to be a son in his, his home. And one time, about 20, 25, 30 years ago or so, I went to a father-son banquet with him, and he gave a testimony of how he was saved. He uh, said that there was a, an evangelist that had come through the, the prairie there, out close by to where he was living. He was about 8 or 10 years old. And his mother said to him, why don't you go over to the services tonight? So he did, and... One of the nights that he was there, he accepted Christ as as a Savior. But the problem was that there was no really good church in that area. Only church, only Protestant church in Westville, Illinois, was an old, dead, congregational church where they really didn't know anything about the Word of God at all. And they they went there for a while and, and had some social time, I guess, there. But they didn't really didn't really grow in the Lord. My mother. Also, after they got married, they were attending that church for a while, but not at all serious about the things of the Lord. But then a tragedy occurred in their life, and that was their first baby died at childbirth. Uh, she would have been my older sister, and she, there was nothing really wrong with her other than I think the doctors didn't handle the situation very well, maybe a cord wrapped around her neck or something like that, and she died. And know, this is a... You know how that would be. This was gut-wrenching time in their lives. And I've, I've read some of the poetry. In fact, we were looking at some of the poetry this summer that she wrote, especially the one this summer we are looking at, she wrote after that tragedy around Christmas time. And she was thinking back about her baby being, I mean, it, just, it just tears your heart out when you read, read some of that. A tragedy, a horrible thing. And when that thing happened to them, my dad said, we began to get serious about the things of the Lord. And we began to look around for a, a Bible preaching church that really taught us how to live the Christian life. And so they found the First Baptist Church in Danville, Illinois. They had Actually, the church was just going through a pastor change, and the new pastor came, and he was a conservative. His name was Mitch Seidler. This was his first, first church that he was a part of. And uh, he was a Bible teacher. And I can remember him, you know, with the chart up there, with dispensational chart across there, with his, didn't have overheads or PowerPoints or anything in those days, but his pointer out, you know, and teaching. And my mom and dad, they began to grow in the Lord. And I think I mentioned to you one time about, you know, the old deacon and deaconesses that had the dog-eared Bibles and studied the Word of God. It was just them. You know, that's what they, that's what they were. They just were serious about the things of the Lord. And so when I was born... It was almost as though I were born in the church. I mean, I just, from the very first day, I can tell you who my nursery teacher was, Sally Shum, an old German lady. And uh, I've seen my name on an old cradle roll, you know, being less than a year old or whatever. But I just grew up in this church and went to vacation Bible times and went to the Christian camp down there, Camp Assurance. And when it came time to go to a Christian to a school, I went to a Christian college. It just seemed like I just kind of grew 
you know, with my parents. I can remember when my my mother came home. And now I'm, this is going to sound weird to you, but I can remember when my mother came home from a service and said, you know, tonight I decided I'm not going to go to any more Hollywood movies. Now, I know that's not the unpardonable sin, and we probably all will go to a movie from time to time. But, I mean, for her, that was a major step of dedication. I can remember when my dad came home and said, I'm not going to smoke cigarettes anymore. And we took the, all the ashtrays out of the house, except for one for Uncle Don, <laughs> who came and visited us regularly and needed a place to put his cigarettes, I guess. But, uh, you know, just a lot of wonderful growth. And then, of course, I went into the ministry. My same thing happened to my brother. My brother is a seminary teacher down in down at Louisville, Southern Baptist Seminary there. And we just grew in the Lord. And uh, the point of all this is that I believe that my life has been lived for God because of, of, of trouble, of, of tragedy, of intense heartache that came into my parents' life. But they handled that situation correctly and, and allowed it to, not to harden their heart, but to bring them closer to God. Sometimes, you know, when we... When we th- you hear out here in the evangelical world, the charismatic world and everything else, when you become a Christian, everything becomes wonderful, rosy. You get rich. You're never sick. You know, everything is just wonderful from that time on. But that's not at all the Bible message. The Bible message is that man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward, the Bible says. And the Bible teaches that trouble is one of the ways that God really has of molding our life and maturing us and bringing us to a place where he wants us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. My son, uh, a few years ago, attended uh, John Piper's church, and we were talking some time ago about Piper's ministry. And probably you know, many of you know, know the name John Piper. And, and he said, you know, when Piper preaches, he really gets right in your face, so to speak. And, you know, I, I think that's, a, that's the same way that, that God is when he brings trouble into your life. I mean, it's God really confronting you. It's God getting right in your face and trying to, to work with you and to mature you. And the Bible has a lot to say about the topic of how we're supposed to respond to difficulties. The first, just to take three examples, the first one is Romans chapter 5. And the first four verses there especially... Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character hope. And then if you turn over to First Peter, just to see what the Apostle Peter had to say about this. First Peter chapter 4 and verses 12 and 13. First Peter 4 verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Don't be surprised by the fiery troubles. And then 
back to James chapter 1, please. James chapter 1, in the passage we read this morning already, verse 2, Considered all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, the theme of the book of James, as we heard yesterday in the ordination council, is something about, like, your faith, the quality of your faith being tested. And so, throughout the book of James, there are all kinds of ways that James talks about how your faith might be tested, the quality of your faith, how, how strong your faith is. He talks about your faith being tested by temptation in chapter 1, but how you respond to the Word of God in chapter 1. He talks about how your faith is uh, tested, the quality of your faith is tested by your speech. You know, he talks a lot about your speech through the book of James. And here in this chapter, he tells us the quality of your faith is going to be tested by how you handle trouble. The basic truth, I think, we find in all these passages that we've read, and especially here in this passage, is that the Lord brings trouble into our lives for a reason. And the interesting thing about trouble when it comes into a Christian's life is that he can respond to it in one of two ways. He can respond properly and biblically, or he can respond carnally like the secularist. But God wants us to respond properly to trouble and heartache when it comes into our life. So this passage in James, I think, gives us three reasons, three principles, why the Lord brings trouble into our life. First of all, the Lord brings trouble into our life because God is more interested in your holiness than He is in your happiness. God is more interested in your holiness than He is in your happiness. And this is found in verse number 2. Consider all joy... My brothers, when you encounter various trials. Now, this is a verse that's pretty difficult to understand in a lot of ways, let alone practice. James is writing to Christians who had a lot of trouble. They were persecuted in many different ways. According to chapter 5, uh, they, lots of them were working for rich bosses, fat cats, wicked people that had withheld their, withheld their wages from them who had even physically mistreated, even killed some of them. So these people were uh, persecuted probably more than any of us had ever been persecuted. They had more trouble than probably most of us have ever had. And they hadn't been Christians very long, and so these trials were a real challenge to their faith. And here James has the audacity to tell them to rejoice when they fall into different kinds of troubles. How can that be? And I'm sure the secular American has no idea about this kind of attitude toward troubles and difficulties. I mean, if he's especially mature, the secular American may, you know, try to learn something from the trouble that comes into his life, learn a lesson. But this passage goes far beyond just learning a lesson. This passage says that you're supposed to rejoice when trouble comes into your life. How can that be that we do that? And I think the answer is, you can rejoice when trouble comes in your life if you have as the goal of your life to be holy rather than just to be happy. Handling trouble correctly should bring us joy because, according to these verses, trouble produces in us really important qualities, vital, dynamic qualities that make us, make us the kind of people that God wants to use. In, 
These characteristics include things like endurance, like spiritual maturity, extremely valuable in our life, more valuable than gold. You know, Paul, in the passage you read in chapter 5 of Romans, says, you know, tribulation brings perseverance or endurance. And then this endurance brings character. And this character brings hope. So a, a whole list of wonderful qualities can be produced in your life when you handle trouble correctly, when you have uh, holiness as the goal of your life. Holy, uh, put it this way, the, the arrival of trouble in your life should, should be an opportunity for the growth in holiness and in these wonderful characteristics that these passages tell, tell us about. I don't know, this is a homemade illustration. See if it helps. Uh, suppose you're standing out on the road hitchhiking, and you want to go to Phoenix because you have somebody there that's really beloved, a a loved one of some sort. And as you hitchhike, along comes a motorcycle and offers to take you. So you get on, maybe somewhat reluctantly, but to get on. And away you go, off to Phoenix. As you go, it's probably hot. Maybe someplace in there there's a a desert thunderstorm that comes up, and you get drenched. It's very, very uncomfortable, but... There's a certain joy that goes with it because it's taking you to where you want to go. But if you're standing out there on the road hitchhiking, you want to go to Phoenix to see your loved one, and along comes a motorcycle, and you get down and take off, but instead of going to Phoenix, he goes to Cheyenne, Wyoming. And then you have the rain and the hot and all that. Then those things make no sense to you whatsoever. Because it's not taking you to where you want to go. If you have holiness as your goal, where you want to go, and these difficult things come into your life, and they take you to where you want to go, okay, they're uncomfortable. But there's a certain amount of joy in it because you're going where you want to go. But if you don't have holiness, you have happiness as the goal of your life, and these things come into your life, then they don't make any sense to you. And I think to the average American, especially the unsaved and many probably Christians as well, they have there's no sense for the difficulties and for the troubles and the hard things that come into their life. But to have holiness as your goal makes sense when difficulties, because it will take you there. But so many of us have us all turned around. And so we, you know, we run over here looking for happiness. And then we, we run over here looking for happiness. And we run over here looking for happiness. And when... Trouble comes in our life, it doesn't help our happiness at all. We, we go away from it. We hate it. James says here you can rejoice when trouble comes in your life if you have holiness as the goal of your life. Now, is God interested in our happiness? Yes, the answer, of course, he is. In fact, this verse tells us one of the ways you can have joy or happiness is to rejoice when you enter into various kinds of, of troubles. But there's no place in the Bible that ever calls us to suppress our yearning for happiness. I think God wants us to be happy and wants us to have joy and so forth. But it's it's not desiring happiness that causes <coughs> harm to our spiritual life, but it's searching for happiness in the wrong place. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so we need to find happiness in God and the Lord's will. And all those, and uh, that way, with holiness as our goal, these things will make sense in our lives. 
This verse then, let me just say it one more time. This verse tells us that we can have joy when trouble comes in our lives because trouble pushes us to turn our back on the empty and vacuous pleasures of life and to find fullness of joy in the Lord and in these amazingly valuable qualities that he has for us as our character and our maturity develops. God is more interested in your holiness than he is in your happiness, your superficial happiness. The second principle that I find in this passage is that a trial rightly met will bring endurance, but a trial wrongly met will bring a temptation to sin. A trial rightly met will bring endurance, but a trial wrongly met will bring a temptation to sin, at least instability. James goes on and talks about the the double-minded man who's like the wave of the sea. It's tossed here and there, and that's what he's talking about, the person that doesn't handle trouble in a correct way. Verse number 3 tells us, so knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, the word for test or try, the trying your faith, the testing your faith in this passage actually carries with it a very positive idea. It's almost the idea of approving of your faith. It's the fact that God wants you to pass this test. God expects you to pass the test. I think this is true of teachers. When teachers, a good teacher at least, gives a test, he, uh, the reason for giving a test is not to try to get you to fail. Even yesterday, James may not have believed this or not, but uh, when we were giving him the test, it wasn't to try to make him to fail, but it was to give him an opportunity. A teacher does this for any student. Give him an opportunity to demonstrate how much they've learned. To demonstrate that they've learned their lessons. And that's the way God handles and uh, develops tests for us. It's for the purpose of us demonstrating that we've learned our lessons, our, our faith has grown in the lesson that we've learned, we're able to go on to the next step. So God wants us to pass the test when he brings a test into our life. I read the story of, a, of an old, uh, of a, in the old Wild West, uh, of a... a a railroad bridge that they had built. It was built by the railroad company across this great chasm. And after it was built, the people were kind of afraid to ride across it. It just looked, when they looked up at it, you know, it looked kind of spindly. It didn't look like it would be strong enough to hold the weight of the trains and so forth. So on a certain day, they, they gathered uh, everybody that they could in the territory to come and watch this demonstration they had newspaper people come who would be able to report the story. And while everybody watched, the railroad company, you know, knowing that if they didn't do something, they were going to lose a lot of money, they brought two locomotives with train cars fully loaded behind them all the way out, very slowly out to the middle of this bridge where they just met, and then they just sat there with a heavier weight than that bridge would ever have to experience again. Now, the purpose of this test was not to see whether the bridge would fall down or not because the railroad company knew it wouldn't, and that would have been a stupid thing to do anyway. But the purpose of the test was to demonstrate for all to see that here was a bridge that could take it. And so it is with God. God does not expect you to fail. He expects you to pass. And when he brings a test into your life, He has a good reason for it, the approving of your faith. 
the testing of your faith, the approving of your faith, produces this endurance. Now, there are examples in Scripture of people that have failed. I think even from the very beginning, it's maybe a little more of a temptation, but you remember in the, the Garden of Eden, there was the tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that you couldn't eat. Uh, what was the reason? Why did God put that tree in there? Was it to get Adam and Eve to fail? No, it was to have them pass the test, be confirmed in righteousness, and live the rest of their days and all their posterity to live in righteousness and in harmony with God. But the devil came along and took that test and turned it into a temptation. And when they failed, it plunged not only them, but the entire human race into the depravity and sin. It's possible to fail a test. A trial wrongly met brings a temptation to sin. But there are also many examples in Scripture of people that want us to pass, that positively pass the test. I thought of Abraham, for example, back in Genesis chapter 22. This is a passage that has really been significant to me at different times in my uh, lifetime. I can remember, you know, this is a passage where God tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, and go out and sacrifice him. I was, when I was getting ready to do my doctoral work, I can remember filling out the application, put the $10 or $20 check in it, whatever it was, to send off to the uh, Dallas Seminary for the, for the graduate work there, and for doctoral program. And uh, we had so little money in those days that I just wasn't sure whether I had to spend $10 on a application fee or not. So I can remember going down to the post office in Oatana, Minnesota, with this application and $10 check and just kind of walking around the post office for a while. Do I want to do this or don't I want to do it? Should I do this? Is this what God's want me to do? And finally dropping that thing in there. But one of the things that really helped me in the midst of all that was the story of Abraham. Abraham, isn't there anything that God asks you to do that you wouldn't do, that you'd say, no, I'm not going to do that? And Abraham must have said, no, whatever God asks me to do, I'm going to do it. It doesn't make any difference. I'm going to do it. And so God tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, and up there and sacrifice him. And you remember the story, and yet God provided a substitute there for him. And then, But God said to Abraham at the end of this chapter, Abraham, now I know that you trust me. Now, God, of course, knew it beforehand in a certain sense, but this was a demonstration. Here was a test that came into Abraham's life. Now I know that you trust me. But there are other things that are going to happen in Abraham's life as years go by, but this is, again, a major event, a major step forward in Abraham's life. And he learned that a trial rightly met brings about endurance, though a trial wrongly met is going to bring a temptation to sin. And then finally, the third principle that I learned from this passage is that God brings trouble into your life to mature you, not to move you. God brings trouble into your life to mature you, not to move you. And this is what's found in verse number 4. And let endurance have its perfect work in you. Let endurance have its perfect work, its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 4 tells us here that we ought not to run away from our troubles. 
And if we do, we miss the great opportunity for God to develop character in our lives. Let patience, let endurance have its perfect work in you. Don't run away from it, or you're going to become this unstable person. First thing that comes up, you run away from it. I think there's a lot of mistaken idea, don't you, about how the Lord leads in a person's life and how hard things relate to that. I remember my first year of teaching. I came out of seminary. We went down to Old Town, Minnesota. I began a, began a teaching at a Bible college. And uh, we didn't have very much money. This is what they promised. This is what they told us we could have. We could have this place to live. It was uh, the bottom part of, a, of an old house. There was a music teacher that lived upstairs, a single lady. And we could have the bottom area of that. This was a house that had, I don't know if this is, sounds cool to you or not, but it had a pink and green kitchen. I don't know, it doesn't sound cool to me, but it, it wasn't very nice. And uh, I remember the middle, of the middle of the house sagged so that when they had this kind of sliding door, if you opened up this door, or I guess you actually closed the space, it wouldn't stay. It went zipping back because it was such a crooked, <laughs> crooked spot there. And I remember the bedroom was actually the front, probably the front living room or maybe even a dining room. But when you looked up at it, there was this huge, awful-looking uh, chandelier right over, your, right over your face, you know, just sort of loomed over you when you were sleeping in, at night. But anyway, that, they gave us that. They said you could eat in the dining hall. And, then they, and our salary was $3,500 for that year. So that wasn't very much money as we began. I mean, even back in those days, that was not very much money. When Linda was pregnant with the first child, and she had to go, she had to work a little bit. She had to go down to, I think she scraped paint off of one of the dormitories they were, they were building at that time just to make a little bit of money. And I got to thinking in the middle of that year, you know, this can't be what God has for me to do. There's too much trouble, too many tough times here going on, not nearly enough of money. And so... I didn't sign my contract, and uh, there were some opportunities to go and be a youth pastor. There was a, a really good youth pastor at a big church up in Minneapolis, and people would call him and say, would you like to come and candidate for my church? And he'd say, no, no, I'm not, I don't want to go. But there's a guy down there in Olatana that might be interested, and so I got these calls. Not because I was especially qualified, but I had several, several opportunities. I remember one opportunity... It was down in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, a church that had 200 high school kids already. I could have been their youth pastor, went and interviewed and preached and all that kind of thing there. But I remember coming back on the plane, and I, just as I thought about it, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to go. And when I thought about that, I thought, oh, man, it's, you know, I just felt awful. And I, okay, I'm not going to go there. When I thought that, just a lot of peace you know about it just wasn't right something was wrong and so finally I signed the contract late to let me sign the contract late I came back the next fall and I was taking a THM course up at the seminary and uh, it was in it was an exegesis of the book of James and we started right in chapter one one two and three and right away I, I, I realized you know pedigree you just about blew a principle of the word of God God doesn't send trouble into our lives to move us. But he sends trouble into our life to mature us. There may be times 
I wouldn't say there were not times where extreme trouble comes into your life where you're going to have to go. You know, hardships are just too great. I wouldn't send that. That's, that's a possibility. Um, sometimes when there is um, a compromise situation, you're going to have to separate. You can't just stay there. You know, there are things like that. I'm not talking about this, but most people won't let God use trouble to develop character in their lives. Instead, they run away from it as quick as they can. And so they lose that opportunity for the Lord to develop this endurance that he's talking about in this passage. Pastors, you know, sometimes they, they need to learn this lesson. Every two years, some of the pastors leave and go to a different church. First little bit of trouble comes up, they say, okay, that's it, I'm going someplace else. Instead of to take their congregation through that, for everybody to kind of be able to learn from that and mature, they run away from it. And students, I taught there at that Bible college uh, for a number of years, and I hear, here came these students year after year all fired up about going to college and whatever, about the things of God, you know, learn the Bible there and their Bible major. And about two months into it, they'd failed a course and their money got kind of low. And they began to say, you know, my, my dad really needs me back there in the farm. I'm probably in the wrong place and God wouldn't put me through this if I were really where I was supposed to be. And away they'd go. They'd go home. Again, miss that opportunity for God to really develop character in their life. After I had taught at college for four years, I began to believe that the Lord wanted me to do doctor work. And so after we made a decision, we bundled everything up into a U-Haul truck of some sort. I guess it wasn't U-Haul, but it was Easy Haul or something like that. And away we went. Actually, we had a, had a, a friend drive the truck, and we, we had two children at the time. And we gathered into... The car, and we headed off from Minnesota to Texas. I remember we got separated from the truck in Kansas City, but the Lord enabled us to get back together. But finally arrived in Texas the first night. I remember we stayed in a motel. Uh, I think it only cost $25, but it would be comparable to maybe you know $75 a day, and we knew we couldn't stay there very long. We didn't have any money. We couldn't have gotten to Dallas, Texas with more than two or $300 in our pocket, and we just didn't have any money. And uh, so the next night, there was, they had a big brother, big sister program, and we stayed with our big brother, big sister, in their little house. And I think maybe we did that maybe once or two nights, one or two nights, and then the next night we had found a little, a part, a little a house, just a small little house, two-bedroom home, that we could rent for $120 a month, but the man who was an elder in some Presbyterian church told us that we could have it for 117.50 because we were in the ministry. So I know that sounds like not very much, but that was a long time ago, and uh, we didn't have very much money. And so we had to, I began to look around for work then, and I knew if I was going to do doctoral studies, I would either have to find some place where I could study on the job, or else I'd have to find a job. It paid me a lot of money uh, for the two or three days that I would work there. And uh, I began to investigate the truck docks and consolidated freightways. I went, somebody said, you ought to try out consolidated freightways. So I went up to consolidated freightways, filled out the application. They said, uh, why don't you come and work for us tonight? They're on the truck docks, loading trucks, unloading, loading, unloading. 
And if we like you, we'll call you back later. You'll be a casual worker, which means we call you in whenever there are plenty of trailers to unload. And if there aren't very many trailers, of course, we don't call you in. But they said, we'll have to tell you that there's not. this is the end of the summer. There's not a whole lot of work to do right now, so we may not call you back for a while. But come to work tonight. So I worked, and they said, fine, we'll call you back as soon as there's plenty of trailers to unload. So uh, a week or so went by. And by now, we're really starting to run out of money. And when, we, when I say run out of money, it doesn't mean we got into our savings account. <laughs> we didn't have any savings account. We didn't have credit cards in those days. You had to be rich to have a credit card. We didn't have any credit cards. And so we were the place where we didn't have any money to buy food. Now, my parents probably wouldn't let us starve, so it wasn't that desperate. But we were really without any money. About this time, I got the flu, a stomach flu. And I got over it a couple of days, and then I got it again. And I'm lying on the couch, and it's sick, and it's hot. And the uh, truck docs called and said, would you like to come to work tonight? And the thing about working truck docs in those days, they would pay you right after you're done. And it was a pretty, it was a, a good job. I would have made $50 that night, which, again, comparable to maybe $150 today. And so that was a good job. And so I swallowed hard. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll come. And it was the second shift. started about, I think, 3 o'clock. It was uh, late August. It's 110 degrees that day and humid. And I drove out there to the truck docks and, you know, just worked like a dog all night. And I was so sick. I was so sick. I won't even tell you how sick I was. You know, just terrible. And when that shift was over and I got in the car and I drove back, to our little house, and I fell in the bed. It was almost as though the devil came to me and said, Pettigrew, what are you doing here? Don't you know that God's work always goes first class? You know, you must be out of the will of the Lord. Go home. Go back. This is not a place for you. But I had learned this principle. At least I thought I had learned it pretty well, even though I know I still have to keep learning it. But the principle is that God sends trouble into our life to mature us and not to move us. And I know some of you have had a lot worse trouble than I have along the way. But what I know is that if, if you, if you, Brother James, if any of you are going to be long-term amounting to anything for God, you've got to learn these principles from the book of James. God sends hard things and troubles into your life for a reason. He's more interested in your holiness than he is in your happiness. He's interested in your joy, but he's, he's interested in you receiving it in the right way. And a trial rightly met will bring endurance, where a trial wrongly met is going to bring a temptation to sin. And God brings trouble into your life to mature you and not to move you. May these principles guide us as we seek to be mature servants of God. Let's pray, please.